I'm Dr. Siu Kaka, pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged six months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women, who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. Morning and welcome to the week on three. I'm Christy Lai, wishing you a happy mid-autumn festival or Zhong Tauji Fylock from all of us here on Radio Three. Hope you're all well and spending time appreciating the beautiful Hong Kong skyline tonight. Let's hope we get to catch a glimpse of the moon. Since it's mid-autumn festival, why not take this time to dine out with family? If you're looking for a suggestion, I might actually have one for you. A personal favorite of mine is Sichuan food. I'm not a pro in explaining what the flavors are, but what I can tell you is that it is spicy. An example of a Sichuan dish is Mala Xiang Guo, which literally translates to spicy stir-fried hot pot, where you put vegetables, meat, and all sorts of ingredients together with different spices and chilies. Up next, Tracy Wong, the owner of Chili Figara, a Sichuan restaurant in Central. Shares with Noreen Mir a general flavor profile of this cuisine. On Global Flavors, this entire September. We'll be bringing you a taste of Sichuan. This famous Chinese cuisine, originating from Sichuan Province, is well known for its bold flavors, spiciness, and mouth-numbing sensation. This week, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Tracy Wong, who's the owner of Chili Figara, a Sichuan restaurant in Central in Hong Kong. Tracy starts by explaining the flavor profiles of this mouth-watering cuisine. Sichuan food is based on traditional Chinese ma la and tang,、uh, which is the Chinese name of our restaurant.、Um, ma meaning numbing, la meaning burning, from the chili peppers. Tang, which means neutral, natural in taste, but also it's all、uh, Sichuan flavors. It's、uh, unique and it's been exciting for our guests. From the very beginning, from、uh, Graham Street to Obeli now, with these flavors, are there varying degrees of ma, the numbing, and varying degrees of la, the the chilliness, the the spiciness? Oh, definitely. We do have a、uh, uh, less ma, less numbing, or maybe um, um, extra numbing, and also for chili peppers for the burning chili spices. Um, you can do it less spicy or extra spicy, but normally everybody just prefers、um, normal, like the normal、uh, spiciness. And then we do occasionally get these、um, crazy <laughs> customers. They will come in and say, "No, I want really extremely numbing and extra spicy." What? <laughs> you can't? Can you really taste the food when you've got that sort of、um, uh, the numbingness? Well, I'm definitely.、Uh, 
a spicy uh, chili lover, so I can still taste the food. So, and um, I also believe that the guests, the customer who come in who wants extra spicy, extra nummy, they can also feel the t- taste. The flavors as well. Yeah. What if um, some of our listeners are beginners? Because Sichuan food is just so delicious. And for some of our listeners who've never tasted it before, I really, after this interview, I urge you to just head out and go for lunch uh, or go for dinner and just try Sichuan food. Um, where's a good starting point to try out these flavors? I mean, how spicy would you recommend it, and, or how numbing would you recommend? Oh my God! So you must start from. Little, little spiciness works your baby steps. Just do baby steps and work your way up. And because our menu is divided into ma, la, and tang, the chef recommends you having a tang dish first because it's very neutral and natural in taste. Not saying it's bland or no taste, you know, but it's just not as overbearing. So then, um, after the tang dish, you'll be able to have some la and have some ma. So and and if you get too spicy, you can always go back to tang, which will neutralize everything. So you'll be you you can start up again. So definitely um, start from baby steps and work your way up. And the more you eat, the more you you know you'd want more. So I would say practice definitely makes perfect. <laughs> That's good advice, you know, because you know, Hong Kong is full of sort of overachievers, and you know there are people who go into a restaurant and look for spicy food, and they're like, "I'm going to go for the spiciest," and you end up just not really being able to taste uh, the actual flavors of the food itself. So it's good to start off small and work your way up. Uh, to the different spiciness levels um, in, in Sichuan food, how would you describe these flavors then to to, uh, to to some people who've not really? Is it it's not really spicy like um, um, it's spicy around the tongue? I, I don't know. It's like oh, I can't even explain it. Whenever I have Sichuan food, um, I feel like I need to have soya bean milk next to me. Water just doesn't cut it. So ma are small little berries. Um, that are grown in Sichuan, and they we use it in Sichuan cooking. When you use it, it will give off this numbing sensation in your lips and your tongue. We call it orgasmic to your tongue. <laughs> 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 so um, when we use that in cooking, you'll definitely have these um, interesting sensation in your lips and your tongue, and they definitely go away. They don't they don't linger on for a long time. But yes, having soya bean. Milk on the side, or maybe just dairy. Anything with dairy will definitely help. And we also have um, uh, drinks that will cool you down in the restaurant. So don't worry about that. We'll take care of you for sure. All right. Well, Tracy Wong, it's so lovely to speak to you. Next week, we'll be talking a little bit more about the common ingredients, and perhaps uh, you can talk through some of your childhood favorite foods. Thank you so much, Tracy from Chili Fagara. Tracy Wong, owner of Chili Figara on brunch with Noreen. If you would like to learn more about Sichuan cuisine, make sure to stay tuned to the four-part series, which will be aired for the whole of September. Summer is almost coming to an end, but if you would still like to enjoy the beach, the weather is still pretty good to swim around and even do some snorkeling. However, it is always good to be mindful of the creatures living underwater, and specifically corals. According to Green Power Hong Kong, 
There are more than 80 different coral species living in the coastline of Hong Kong, and many are slowly dying due to pollution. During the brew on Tuesday, Phil is joined by Dr. Mirren Pierce and John Terenzini to discuss the Echo Shoreline Project, a project to design and implement ecological engineered features that ensure coastal ecosystems not only survive, but thrive. Uh, the Eco Shoreline Project is a subset of the State Key Laboratory of Marine Pollution. And uh, so what we're doing is we're looking at restoring biodiversity and restoring function to impacted coastlines. So many of our coastlines here in Hong Kong are artificial concrete seawalls. They might be uh, land reclamation, those kinds of things. And so would naturally severely impact biodiversity in those areas. John, have the guys who've been doing all the fun co-steering stuff helped clear the way for you, do you think? Uh, well, different systems there. So co-steering is going to be out in some more of the more natural areas, ah. whereas, uh, whereas what we're doing is going to be in, a uh, majority of what we're doing is in harbour areas. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting. We're thinking of rock walls or... Uh, uh, concrete walls that just are normally quite flat and boring. Um, but there's a good website that people will be able to head to, and we'll make sure we give that to people for the Eco Shoreline project. Let's give our listeners and viewers a bit of a clue. Let's pop up a picture of something really boring, shall we? <laughs> what do you got? Okay. Well, I reckon the people waist deep um, looking at a <laughs> uh, looking at a wall, and you're kind of going, "What on earth are you looking at?" There's square blocks with other blocks on it that look like tiles of um, some kind of uh, kind of a bit like what do you call it when you put all the little glass pieces into a tile mosaic type of pattern. What okay. have they got on that wall? First up, John, have these been designed specifically for this purpose? They don't look random to me. They look like kind of baffles for that reason. That is correct. Each each one of these, uh, so on, on the one side, the smaller ones, these are, we call them the tiles, and on the other side where people are waiting, those are our panels. And each one of these is specifically designed the way it is to increase the habitat complexity. So easily compared to the seawall that they're attached to, which is just flat and open, each one of these tiles and panels is designed so that uh, smaller creatures can hide inside of these areas and they can be protected from some predation. Uh, what's pretty interesting, too, is that it helps actually lower the temperature of these areas. And on the, the right side where the, the gentleman in the dark shirt is standing, he's got a, a meter there where he can actually gauge the temperature. He's taking a, a photo that will show temperature range. What's the, physic what's the physics of that? How does it how does it do it? So I have no idea how the camera does it myself, but I do know. No, I mean the temperature, the temperature um, control, with the with the with the uh, contoured blocks. Oh, okay. So the uh, so the contoured blocks there will provide areas inside, so for shading and the like, oh. and they do have quite a significant impact. Uh, it's been shown through our through our research on that. Side of the screen there, we've we've got uh, one of our artificial reefs, which we created out of dead oyster shells, and it's exactly what uh, what Marin was describing. We're trying to create an area in which there's all sorts of holes, and there's a lot of uh, complexity to this to this large Similar block. Deal. That's about half a meter high and maybe about a meter and a half wide there and yeah. strapping those together. Okay. And uh, then we went out into Shamwan Lama. And so that's where the, the boat is. You can see that uh, we're about to push that into the, into the water. Mm -hmm. So 
This happened a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in fact, just yesterday, my partner in crime here, Hammond and I were, were diving these reefs to check them after uh, after some of the storm. There were some impacts on the reefs, but we also noticed that there were things living on them. Some fish have started to use them for protection. So it's a uh, it's it's starting to work even in this, the, this is not man-made stuff so i mean is this basically what where reefs are born in a way yeah in a, in a way that's what we're hoping to do is is by bagging these shells we're hoping to advance along what nature would do naturally by providing that big block for them and hopefully over time uh what we're looking at are some uh, steel bags, but we also have hemp bags that we hope will fall apart naturally. Mm -hmm. And then the oyster shells themselves will be held together by more natural processes and provide habitat. And uh, we've got a very interesting green photo as well that shows the, these under the ground. Is this um, this just uh, measurement lines or what's the orange lines? Are they, are they metal straps? You better describe what they are and where they are, guys. It's um... Yeah, because it's Underwater, a green color, though you've got to put a filter in, which is obviously Hong Kong's uh, estuarine water rather than the open blue water if gone a bit further out. Do join us on Facebook Live if you want to see what they're talking about. And you have a couple of minutes spare over your lunch because these photos are absolutely brilliant. Thanks as always, John. Sure thing. Yeah, the, the, as you know, the, the color there uh, is the visibility or lack thereof within Chamois. We We do have quite some difficulty with the visibility there because there's a lot of uh, suspended solids in in the water there. And so what we're looking at here, the, we've got some straps that were used to hold those bags together because when we're pushing them off, there's going to be high energy. They're dropping down mm. uh, anywhere from five to 10 meters down into the water and then impacting the bottom. So we wanted to keep them together. Um, it's very green down there. Does all the life that comprises the green also contribute to a new reef? It certainly could, uh, and we certainly hope so. Uh, when we were out there recently, some of our uh, some of our reefs started to have some anemones on there. Oh, Hammond yeah. and I saw some anemones uh, yesterday. We've seen some hydroids growing on there. So certainly things, uh, planktonic sorts of things. Tell me what a hydroid, what, I'm not a marine biologist funnily enough well uh, sure and no, no worries it, it actually uh somewhat relates to my my other favorite topic jellyfish so these are uh we have some of the sessile hydrates they look like plants or they look like a small feather that would be sticking out of a hard surface so they would need a hard surface much like these oyster shells okay. that we're providing here to grow on okay uh, and and all the pictures we're looking at today and they're describing today i mean it's fascinating they're all in hong kong <laughs> we need reminding of this sometimes don't we yeah, Hong Kong's biodiversity is is actually pretty amazing because we're we're at a at a latitude where we have some temperate species coming down from the north, and we also have tropical species from the south. So we're we're kind of in a dividing line, and there's there's a lot of research out there about Hong Kong's biodiversity mm. and just what different what range of biodiversity we have. Have you got a website or a social media right now um, to give us more details if people want to find out more about this rather than just hear us talking? Sure. You can check out ecoshoreline.org. Okay. That's ecoshoreline.org. Just run it all together. John Terenzini on The Brew. Hong Kong has just had its first imported case of monkeypox, and many are not only confused but scared about this unknown disease. 
To tell us more about what it is, and even a potential vaccine, is Dr. Teresa Wang, clinical microbiology and infection specialist, where she spoke to Janice Wong and Danny Gittings on Backchat. Um, I think at the moment, um, not really, because we have been expecting to have monkeypox cases imported since um, the outbreak globally. So in a way, we have mentally prepared for this. And we are also well aware that the monkeypox is going to be um, coming from overseas. So it was lucky for us to pick it up as we have expected, instead of identifying it, um, having a local case um, that um, we didn't know about the source. So I think at the moment it's still uh, under our control and uh, we shouldn't be too worried about monkeypox being spread out in Hong Kong at this moment. Now, everyone who was on the flight with this, um, with this patient and uh, airport workers have been uh, sort of advised, haven't they, to, to watch their health. Um, how worried should uh, people who've been uh, passengers on the same plane be and what advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Right. According to what we have um, studied about monkeypox, especially with this outbreak, it shows that actually this strain of monkeypox um, has got to be transmitted with a close contact or um, a prolonged period of contact, intimate contact. So a lot of them, um, not all of them even though, um, actually has the disease that transmitted through sexual contact. But um, apparently airborne, um, infection associated with this monkeypox at this moment is not high um, as we have expected. So I think we can keep an eye on all those doing health surveillance. If any one of them developing symptoms, we can um, isolate them accordingly and give uh, treatment if needed. And uh, Dr. Wang, you just said we don't need to be worried about uh, this case at the moment. And uh, the government has now activated the uh, first of its uh, three-tier monkeypox response plan, uh, which involves strengthening health surveillance measures at the border and distributing information about the virus. So is this enough for now? Um, I think it is enough for now. Um, I think getting the people being aware and actively reporting to the authority is what we could do at the moment because um, monkeypox, if it's um, on the phase, it's easy to tell. But a lot of the time, as we have observed with this outbreak, many of them are having the symptoms over their genitalia, which is the private parts. So it's not easy to detect to start with. So getting the people to be aware of this, um, telling them to report to the authority as soon as possible, and we strengthen our surveillance um, over the border is what I suppose to be the very sensible and the first step to be done at this juncture. Right. Uh, at yesterday's uh, press conference, uh, health officials also said it's uh, difficult to detect monkeypox cases among arrivals at the uh, airport. Um, so so um, from what you're saying, Dr. Wang, does it mean uh, we just have to rely on inbound travellers uh, reporting their symptoms on arrival? Um, I think because we, we don't have any effective um, investigation. It's unlike um, COVID that we have a rapid test or we have a PCR that can be easily done at this juncture. So um, I think active reporting by those who are coming into Hong Kong is what we could do at this moment. But if we have more cases, if we have um, detected a local outbreak or whatever, then we could strengthen um, other um, 
strategy that we could help to detect, say, like close contact. We have to do um, further investigations and things like that. But at this juncture, just a single reported case, I think we could still wait and see. Uh, I sort of mentioned uh, how um, uh, Hong Kong's first imported monkeypox case, uh, we, ha- we have been told that uh, the patient had taken part in high-risk activities. Um, and do you, what do you think that actually means, Dr. Wang? Is it uh, activities that uh, Professor Dantes was talking about? Yeah, I think um, as we have understand through this outbreak, a lot of them actually are engaged in um, sexual activities uh, with men, having sex with men, the lesbian community or the transgender um, um, population that they have engaged in um, some unprotected sex um, contact. So those are actually how we define the high-risk um, activities at this moment, I think. But for the details, we will have to um, look into the case. So that's what we guess should be um, what to be interpreted as the high-risk activity at this juncture. And the government has bought some vaccinations, but so far they're not actually vaccinating anyone. Um, do, do, do you think that high-risk groups should be vaccinated? Um, I think it's um, sort of debatable because um, I don't know how many doses the government has purchased. And at the moment, I think they prioritise to those that have increased risk of being exposed. So um, it includes the um, healthcare workers, um, the laboratory workers who would definitely come into contact with um, the monkeypox patients if they've got admitted and have to handle their specimen. So um, if we have enough um, vaccines to cover additional people, of course, I think the high-risk community, what I mean by is the um, um, men having sex with men's population, the transgender um, um, and the bisexual community, they should also receive the vaccination if they're willing to. So, um, generally speaking, if we have enough doses, we should also consider vaccinating everybody, but it all depends on the cost effectiveness. So we have to see and follow on to see how the outbreak would evolve in Hong Kong at this moment. Dr. Teresa Wang, clinical microbiology and infection specialist, speaking about monkeypox on Wednesday's Back Chat. And finally, to end today's program, I'll leave you with Steve James, who will be taking us back to that day in history, where he tells us more about British pop sensation Freddie Mercury, who would have been 70 years old. Take care and have a great day. I'll see you same time next week here on The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. is the Steve James Monday Afternoon Drive. I don't trust him. On Radio 3. I like it. I like it a lot. The factories may be roaring with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee. But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Oh, a lawyer in a courtroom in the middle of an alimony plea has to stop and help him pour when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Tea break this afternoon, this day. 2016, an asteroid was named after Freddie Mercury. It was to mark what would have been the singer's 70th birthday. At that time, the Queen frontman had his name attached to the asteroid 17473. 
which was discovered in 1991, the year that he died. Brian May told a gathering of 1,250 fans at Montreux Casino in Switzerland that the asteroid would now be known as Asteroid 17473 Freddie Mercury.
Just wanna love 